Isaiah 30, 15 through 18. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, No, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, We will ride oft on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left, like a flagstaff on the mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. You can be seated. Well, uh, 10 years ago, Emily and I were living in Honduras, in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. We were missionaries, and uh, we had a lot of time on our hands. We, we lived, the, Tegucigalpa is like a bowl. We lived in the middle of the bowl uh, in the city, and then we'd drive up into the mountains and uh, work. It was really fun, and we learned a lot. But uh, we had a ton of time on our hands. We'd work, we'd drive up and work from like 8 to 3 or, or 4. We tutored kids full-time in Spanish, which was a really interesting experience, and uh, our Spanish now is like like street Spanish from Hondurans, and so it's uh, but it's really fun. And uh, we get back to our apartment at three thirty or four o'clock, and the missionaries we worked with were uh, fairly cautious about the kind of travel we did on our own, because you know Honduras is the murder capital of Central America, and uh, so they did not encourage us to be super like free spirited and travel everywhere. And uh, so we were, like, in our apartment a lot. And so we had to fill that time. Um, We played a lot of games. Um, We completed, like, 20 rounds of Monopoly, which is like, uh, you know, reading the Bible 10 times through, I think. Um, We completed Monopoly. My parents sent us a Nintendo Wii. Um, So we did a lot of, like, Wii yoga and tennis and all of those things. Bowling, I was pretty good. There was a time where I thought that my Wii bowling skills would translate to real bowling, which they did not. And uh, one time we went up on the roof of our apartment because we were just so bored, and we threw a hacky sack back and forth for, like, an hour. And uh, it's not like we were even having a great conversation. It was just like, wow, we are really, really bored. And uh, so we decide, okay, one day we're going to go to the mall. So we go to Metro Mall, which is right there by the Intercontinental Hotel. And we're walking around and we see this bookstore. And we're like, hey, we like books. We go in. I'm like a foot and a half taller than everyone in the store. And, uh, and, and we see there's a children's book section that has books that are in English. Like, okay, this is great. This is going to work out fantastic. We go to the children's book section. There's an English shelf. And on the shelf, the only English book that we could find was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And because, you know, I was 24 years old, I, did not, I had not previously read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. No shame to those of you who had by that age. And I thought, we got nothing else to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy it. So I grab it. I walk up to the cash register where I'm overlooking all of the workers, buy uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I go home and I think, you know, what the hey? And I read it in like, like 36 hours. I just devoured it. And so the next day I said, hey, Emily, before we go back to the apartment, let's go back to the mall. So we went to the mall. They happened to have book two, bought it. Within a week, I'd finished that one too. The third time Emily said, I don't want to go into the store with you because you are very noticeable 
in a Honduran mall. And it's like this giant man coming into the children's bookstore looking for Harry Potter. And it's not like we have children to blame it on. This is clearly for you. And so we went uh, week after week after week until I finished, finally like finished the series and I'm on the couch in our apartment just weeping. And how do you explain what you're weeping about? Amy knows what I'm talking about. And the Dumbledore, you just, you can't explain it to other people who don't know the story because you just sound dumb. You just sound so dumb. Like, keep it to yourself, man. And, uh, but I love the Harry Potter stories. One of the things that I learned in the stories is in this, in the world of Harry Potter, you've got, you know, there's, there's good guys and bad guys. You've got rules for how to be a witch and a wizard and all those things. And there are three curses or spells that is called unforgivable. Nobody is supposed to do these. Everybody knows this is bad. One of those is uh, to torture, to torture somebody else. Everybody knows that's bad. That's unforgivable. Another one of those is to kill. Obviously, that's bad. But the third one I thought was slightly surprising, and it's to control. It's to control somebody else. So if you use this spell on somebody else, you can control their every movement. You're in total dominion over these people. And now that I'm a parent, like I, I think that last one might actually be kind of awesome. Uh, the ability to control a human being, which is, you know, if you have roommates, like to do the dishes once in a while, or like your spouse, like to control them putting the lid back on the toothpaste, or whatever it is, that thing that drives you crazy, with this you can make them do it and make you feel so powerful. Which is all funny, but like the desire for control is a very real thing. How many of you have wished at times like you could control the choices of other people? Okay, yeah, all of the time. Uh, for our convenience, for our preference, uh, sometimes because you legitimately want to help. And all of this sets up this theme of conversation for today, which is about surrender versus control. And so we've been talking about this theme of learning to be well. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle in spirit, and you'll find rest for your souls. If you want to be well, come to Jesus. And so in the first week, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was deeply present. He was present to himself. He was able to name his own pain. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was present to his friends, the disciples, while they were asleep to him and to their own pain. And Jesus took that self-knowledge into the presence of the Father. And we talked about presence versus escapism. Last week, we talked out of Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is a reiteration of the Ten Commandments, uh, about uh, rest versus frenzy, choosing rest in a world that's like frenetic and going all over the place all the time. And today, we're talking about surrender versus control. Control is to have restraining or directing influence over someone or something. Um, it's, it's to have power over. Someone who really loves to have control can be described as control freak, a tyrant. Yeah, they're controlling. They're controlling. Someone or, uh, someone, or someone loves to have power, to have authority, to have influence. To be controlling is to set yourself up as a lord or a ruler over somebody else. If you look up controlling in the dictionary, in mine it said, see also domineering. Domineering is tied to a word meaning lordship. To be controlling, to be domineering is to set yourself up as someone or some things lord, uh, to rule over them. 
Uh, and when we try to control others, when we try to be their Lord, we're like a ruler of a, a foreign country invading and asserting dominion over somebody else, over land that is not ours. When I say I want to boss you around, I'm invading your country and I'm putting up my own flag saying I'm the boss of this place. Control is the desire to dictate terms. Control is the desire to be the boss, to be the ruler, to manage a situation. Surrender is the opposite. Surrender is to cease resistance to an enemy uh, and to submit to their authority. It's to give up or to hand over control to a person or to a ruler or something like that, to hand over a right or a possession. Control is about asserting our dominion and our lordship, but surrender is about relinquishing it. In relationships, nobody wants to be described as controlling. Have you ever heard controlling used as a positive virtue? Man, TJ's awesome. He is such a controlling guy. Man, I just love Kay. She is such a control freak. It's never a positive thing to be controlling, to be a control freak. That's not true of either of you, by the way. I love you both dearly. Um, because in controlling somebody else, there are several underlying assumptions that are made when we try to control somebody else. Uh, one of those is, I know what's best for you. I know best of what's needed in this situation, which is pride, pride. I know best. The second, second assumption underlying controlling behaviors is I don't trust that you're going to choose the way that I prefer, which is mistrust in a relationship. I don't trust that you're going to choose the thing that I think is best. And then the third thing underlying controlling behaviors is I'm afraid of what will happen if you don't do what I say, which is fear. So underlying all of our controlling behaviors, we've got pride at some level, we've got mistrust at some level, and we've got fear at some level. And if you want to destroy a relationship, practice pride, mistrust, and fear. Uh, you can't manipulate or control a person and trust them at the same time. You can't try to control a person and love them at the same time. You can't do it. It's just not done. You can't control another person without making yourself bigger and them smaller. How does it feel to be around a person who's trying to dictate what you do? How do you feel? How does it feel to be around a person who's trying to boss you around? It makes you feel small. It makes you feel small. And how, how many of us want to be around someone who perpetually makes us feel small or belittled or it's like they're condescending speaking to us? And if you're a person who's accustomed to getting your way like all the time, it might be wise from time to time in life to just turn around and look at the wake of people who might feel small behind you. You can't love a person and control them at the same time. Now, all of this has been about interpersonal relationships, it's been about relationships, but sometimes there are situations that you really want to control. Sometimes you like really want to control God because you're not getting the outcome that you'd hoped for in a given situation. And some, most of the time, it's really legitimate. I mean, you need healing for somebody that you love. You need provision. You want, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation. You want a breakthrough of some kind. So whatever you got to do, you're like trying to appease God or control God so things go your direction. And so where do you go when you can't control a situation? Where do you turn? You, you turn up. You turn to God. And so what are some of the ways that we try to control God? We try to manage outcomes. One of those could be through moral purity. I'm just going to be super, super good, and if I'm super, super good, God's probably going to do what I want through moral purity. 
Some of us try to manipulate or control God through financial generosity. And there's, I mean, there are a lot of preachers who, in so many words, preach this. If you give, God has to give you what you want. Escalades falling out of the sky. If you give, God has to do the thing that you want. Those have-to words with God make me, like, step aside for the lightning. Another one of the ways that we try to control God, and this is so deceptive for church people, is through religious piety. If I pray, if I fast, hey, I've gone to church three times this month, aren't you going to throw me a bone? Through all of these different things, we're just trying to control God. But all of this mindset assumes a worldview of karma. And karma is, is that God's going to give me what I want if I do good stuff. Karma is about control. If I do good, good will come. If I do bad, bad's going to come, so I need to avoid the bad and do the good because that's how I get good things in my life. And even if a behavior like generosity, we should be generous, like we should be pious, we should pray, all those things, even if those things are good, they come from a, the outward behavior is good, when it's done from a place of control or a posture of control, it betrays relationship. And a relationship, a control is antithetical to relationship. And a life with God is about relationship. Relationships are built on trust. Control and trust in a relationship with God do not all work together. So many of us have a karma mindset when it comes to thinking about God, and this is one more religious version of trying to get God to do what we want, keeping ourselves at the place of lordship over our lives. In the early 6th century BC, uh, the Assyrians were this powerful empire. It's the text that Adam read a couple of minutes ago. They were a really powerful empire. They had as their capital Nineveh, where Jonah had gone and preached at one point, if you recall uh, that biblical story. Uh, Assyria had already invaded the northern kingdoms of Israel and sacked it, destroyed it. And now they had set their sights on, on the, the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the city of Jerusalem. And the, and the, the people of Judah were just like shaking in their boots, terrified of Assyria who was going to come and just wipe them out like they'd wiped out the northern kingdoms. They were in this situation in the first place because they kept going after false gods. And, and God was, because he respected their dignity and their choice, was allowing them to face the consequences of their action. He wasn't doing it out of a karma mindset. He was doing it out of respect. I've told you this is reality. I'm the God who protects you. If you move away from me out of your own free will, I'm going to respect your choice. So the people began to worship false gods, and so God, slow to anger, quick to love, sent prophets to warn them again and again and again. And what did the people do? They continued to ignore God. They continued to resist. The people assumed, like, we are going to have control. We know best for ourselves. There's pride. We don't trust you, God, because we've got these idols, and it's working out for us so far. And I'm afraid of letting go, because what happens if I surrender myself completely to your control? And so on the brink of disaster, with the Assyrian armies announcing their intention to come and wipe out Judah, what do the people of Judah do? They put on sackcloth and ashes and repent? No. They go south and they make a treaty with Egypt because surely God is not going to take care of us. This is Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 3. This is the very beginning of the chapter. God says, "'Woe to the obstinate children,' declares the Lord." To those who carry out plans that are not mine, did I tell you to go to Egypt? No. Forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look to help for Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. 
Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. They were, they, they, God, they knew what they were supposed to do, but they kept their options open and they went to Egypt to make this treaty, hoping this would keep them safe. It's heartbreaking to watch a tragedy in slow motion. It's heartbreaking to watch a person that you love do absolutely everything to try to be well except for the one thing that could make them well. And all of us have experienced this on our own or or we have often greater clarity and objectivity looking at someone who's not us or maybe even outside of their family to watch the train wreck in slow motion. There's a saying in the recovery world, your best thinking got you here. It's like, oh, you need to listen to reason, listen to advice. Then we get to verse 15, which is where Adam began. In verse 15, God says to the people, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, listen, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. There's a way to stay this whole crisis. There's a way to be saved, to be rescued. The sweet spot for you is in repentance and rest. You don't have to do anything, says God. Now, here's what's fascinating about this is in the passage, God practices extremely healthy boundaries. God does not force his way or his will on the people of Judah. God extended to them this offer in repentance and rest is your salvation. I'm going to take care of you, but don't do anything. Don't call Egypt, don't call Babylon, don't do anything. I've got this. I just want you to trust me. If you'll repent and rest and trust me and surrender, I'm going to handle it. God so respects them, so respects human dignity that he's not going to force his will on these people that just don't want to have it, which is where I struggle with some of my friends, you know, who are Calvinists, who say grace is irresistible. Well, in this case, they are resisting it successfully. That God respects their human will. God respects their dignity. Isaiah 30, 18, this is true of God as well. And yet, while you continue to reject God, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, He will rise to show you compassion. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait on Him. Wait on Him. Be patient. Trust Him. Quit doing stuff. He so desires to be gracious toward you. He longs to be gracious, but he's not going to force it. The more the people of Judah said, I know best, I don't trust you, and I'm afraid, the crazier the whole situation got, the worse the whole thing got. And God said to his people, your hope is in repentance and rest and trust and surrender. Sadly, we do the same kind of things in our relationships with one another and with God and in relating to these bigger picture situations. We know deep down that trying to control other people kills relationship. Like, you can't help but get the words out of your mouth. Oh, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. I'm do- but I just have to. You know, you know that it kills relationships to try to dominate another person, to control another person. We know deep down that the path of control kills relationships and to listen to the voice of pride or the voice of mistrust or the voice of fears to give in to our demons. But there's a legitimate question is what do we do with our desire to control? What do we do with this inherent desire to dominate and, and, and lord over others because we know so clearly what they should be doing? What do we do with that impulse? And I have three little areas of application Uh, The first is we start with ourselves. 
We start with ourselves. It's really easy to see the vices of others. It's very easy to see how jacked up you are in that given situation. It's very easy for you, from my perspective, to make these choices, but I can't stop eating out of the tub of ice cream and I can't quit looking at my phone, okay? So let's relativize these things. Let's personalize this. When it comes to dealing with our controlling tendencies, we have to start with ourselves and admit how poorly we do at having, practicing self-control, at practicing self-mastery. And so when we find ourselves with that controlling impulse, the first response should be to repent, to repent of our pride, repent of our mistrust, repent of our fear, and confess our own failure to practice self-mastery. You know what, Alan, I got nothing to say to you because I can't quit looking at my phone. You know, to to practice like, you know what, I haven't taken responsibility for myself first. Uh, Confession helps us empty the pride that fuels control. Confession of sin helps us empty uh, the, the energy reservoir that helps us be judges of other people. This is James 5.16, James, the brother of Jesus, said, look, you want to be well? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It doesn't say confess somebody else's sin. Confess your own sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you want to be well in this area? Then practice self-mastery. Confess your sin. Confess your own failure to practice self-control. What do we do with that tendency to control and manipulate and coerce and practice dominion over others? Uh, We start by taking ridiculous responsibility for ourselves and for our own sin. What do we do with our tendency to control other people? Because I know exactly what you should be doing in this season of your life. I just know. I'm brilliant. What do we do with that tendency to control other people? Uh, Three words, request, respect, and pray. Request, respect, and pray. We do not guilt, shame, prod, or try to get others passively to guess what we want. We do not manipulate, practice passive aggression. We treat other people with the kind of dignity that we want to be treated with. And so if you need something from another person, or if you perceive that you need something from another person, here's what you do. You ask for it respectfully. If you need something from somebody else, you ask for it. Kindly ask. And this is more brilliant than it seems. Asking assumes that the other person has the power to say yes or no to your request. Asking relinquishes control and practices healthy boundaries. I'm not going to invade their country to set up my own flag. They're a country of their own. When you need something from someone else, you kindly and respectfully ask for it. And then when they give their response, you respect that response. Request and respect. Now, you may not like it. It it could work out perfectly. Hey, thank you so much for just asking me directly. When you, just, when you beat around the bush, when you try to get me to guess, which is like my tendency, I want people to guess what I need, when, when it just wears me out, I know you want something, thank you for just asking. Yes, I'm happy to. If somebody gives an answer that you don't like, you don't just ramp up the heat. You don't just yell louder. Take that request to God. God, and, this, and especially the more intimate our relationships, the more important this, this is because these asks can be, can be explosive at times when you ask them a million times in a row. So you, you could take an example of a married couple who 
one of them is coming to church. And so spouse A goes to spouse B and said, I'm, I'm going to church and it's important to me. Will you please come with me? That would mean a lot. The person could say yes or they could say no. If they say no, you don't badger them. You don't pester them endlessly. You take that request elsewhere. Father in heaven, my desire is to be united with my spouse in faith stuff. And they're not making any progress. Would you do something there? Jesus tells lots of stories in the gospel of how to deal with that. You just, you persist in prayer. You're bold in prayer, asking God, I can't change them, which is boundaries. I can't change or control them, and I won't try to. Will you do it? And when it's respectful, when it's timely, you ask again. But you request, you respect, and then you pray. This is brilliant. This is uh, Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy. Willard said, when we belong to the kingdom of God, our approach to influencing others for their good as well as ours will simply be to ask, to ask them to change and to help them in any way they ask of us. It is a natural extension of this dynamic when we turn to ask God to work in their lives and hearts to bring about any changes. And as long as we respect them before God, and are thoughtful and gracious, we can keep asking in appropriate ways. Keep seeking and keep knocking on the door of their lives. This is so basic, but we destroy our relationships when we don't practice it. If you have a need or you perceive that you have a need to be met by somebody else, you ask for it. And then that leads us to this third topic of, of control, which is controlling God and controlling our situation. There are some heartbreaking realities that folks in our church live in. There are complications in pregnancy. There's a desire to, to be married and it's not happening. There's, there's sickness. There's, there's you know, extenuating like, uh, circumstances in a relationship so the people are kept at a distance. There are lots of reasons why you would want to control God or control a situation, many of them motivated from a pure place. But it is the reality of the world that we cannot control others. So what do we do when we're in those kind of situations? Well, in any relationship, what hinders a, rela- what hinders a flourishing relationship? As we've said, it's pride, it's mistrust, and it's fear. And those things come to bear in our relationship with God too. So what do we do with our pride? And what do we do with our mistrust? And what do we do with our fear? Pride, the answer to pride is repentance. This is First Peter. This is, man, this is sobering. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Do you want God to oppose you? Oh, gosh. God opposes the proud, the people who who think themselves Lord of their own life. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Do you want to receive uh, the grace and the favor of God? Repent. How are you being proud in a given situation? When it comes to our mistrust, what is the, what is the antonym of mistrust? It's, it's trust. This is Proverbs 3. Maybe you memorized it at one point in life. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. It may sound cliche to those of you who've walked through fire, and yet it doesn't make it untrue. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him or submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. And then what do you do in the face of fear? We practice courage. God says versions of this dozens of times through Scripture. Don't fear. I'm with you. 
Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. When we experience pride and mistrust and fear, we repent. We call up our courage. We call ourselves to trust. And all of this in a word is surrender. Surrender is to relinquish control. It's to stop fighting God and say, I'm yours. And I read this this book this week. This is from uh, one of my pastor heroes, John Tyson. It's from his book, The Burden is Light. And Tyson was giving this metaphor talking about surrender and control that maybe you've heard before, talking about a trapeze. You know the trapeze at the circus where you're on the little platform and you hold on and you swing out and you let go and somebody catches you? And so Tyson tells this little story in his book using the metaphor, but there's a cool twist on it. Tyson says, the antidote for a spirit of control is a spirit of surrender. Surrender is that beautiful posture of the heart in which we humbly climb off the throne of our own lives and we invite the one who rightfully belongs there to take our place. Instead of seeking sovereignty over ourselves, we trust the one who is over all things and rest in his good intentions for us. We can rest, we can relax when we trust that God has good things in store for us. He's working for our good. Many have found, says Tyson, the trapeze to be a rich metaphor for the concept of surrender. One reason this metaphor resonates has to do with one of several meanings of the word surrender. Surrender meaning to give over, to return that which truly belongs to another. It carries the implication of putting one's full weight on something or someone. And there's probably no better metaphor for putting yourself into the hands of another than suspending yourself in midair just waiting to be caught. The metaphor became central to the author Henry Nouwen's faith. At the end of his life, Nouwen took a sabbatical and gave serious effort to learning the trapeze from a troop of flyers. Can you imagine like your 80-year-old grandpa doing this? Wouldn't this be awesome? It may seem like an odd thing for a brilliant scholar to do, but given that his life was in many ways haunted by a struggle for control, it makes perfect sense. He wanted to bask in the reality of the metaphor by hanging in midair and learning to be caught. His key insight was that, is that in order to be caught safely, the people being caught must be completely still. They must surrender control, placing total trust in the catcher's ability. And so Tyson thinks he's uncovered this brilliant metaphor. He preaches on it and shares it at church one night. And this couple comes up to him, and it turns out they're trapeze artists. And they said, hey, good metaphor, but it's even better than you realize. Come out to our place in Brooklyn and we're going to have you do the trapeze. And he's like, you know, called on the spot, okay, I'll do it. So he goes out to Brooklyn to this hipster place where he like, you know, harnesses up and he's going he's gonna to practice the trapeze, which he feels really confident about until he like sees the platform that he has to go on and how high it is and, and he freaks out a little bit. He says, I walked into the tent trying to project an air of confidence, but as soon as I saw the height of the platform, a knot started to form in my stomach. After seeing the the delight on my friend's faces, I knew I could not back out. I dutifully complied with all the safety instructions and got ready for my turn. While waiting in line, uh, my friends finally explained the missing part of the metaphor. He said, most people think of the catcher, the trapeze bar, and the person on the swing, they said, but they miss the crucial thing that gives you the confidence to let go in the middle of the air. On the ground, there's a trapeze instructor. 
they said, an expert who understands every element of the trapeze world. He's the person who sees everything objectively and knows just where you are in the movement. They went on to explain that when you're learning to surrender, you have no concept of timing. You have no way of knowing when it's safe to let go or cling to the bar for dear life. And when we don't have that perspective, letting go feels more like suicide than surrender. But when the expert instructor yells, let go, you can trust that he sees what you can't see and that the catcher is ready to take hold. Placing trust in this person and not your own sense of skill or timing is what enables you to let go. And then Tyson reflected. He said, this was the missing piece of the trapeze metaphor. When we give up control, we need to know that someone is aware of the bigger picture, the whole story, and can see everything from start to finish. When we're learning to let go, we can't trust our controlling instincts of fear or pain. We must rely on another to teach us to surrender. And this is why surrender to God's sovereign care is essential to our faith. He chose us. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Determined the time in history that we should live, placed us in our circumstances, and is working out His will in our lives. He loves us and is committed to our flourishing and joy. And only when we truly believe that we are in the middle of His plan can we stop manipulating other people in an attempt to fulfill ours. We can surrender when we have confidence that there's someone outside of us who has the objective perspective who longs to see us flourish and be well, and when he invites us to surrender, is doing it in a place of safety. Not one without fear, but one of tremendous, tremendous safety. And so I wonder for you and for us, where in your life do you need to surrender? Where in your life are you not yet trusting yourself completely over to God? It could be your money, your future, your image, your legacy, your friendships, your sexuality, your desire for a spouse, your desire for kids, your work, your school, your screw-ups, and even your sin. And it may be that you've held on to your sin for just way, way too long. That one thing I'm keeping back for myself. Maybe you've held on to it because you've believed some lies about God, that you believe in karma, You can't let go of your sin because you know you'll get judgment, but that's karma. That's not the Christian faith. You let go of your sin, and God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us His righteousness. He welcomes us into His family. You have something that you could name where you're not yet trusting Him. And maybe it's because you don't trust that He's good and He sees objectively, but there's an invitation today to surrender control. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Would you close your eyes? And and maybe as we did at the beginning of the service, you would just open up your hands and surrender. Father, I I know I have things that I've yet to trust you with completely. That too often I, I want the reins. I have pride. I want to be my own Lord. I feel like I know best. Sometimes I don't trust you because what happens if I let go of that? Sometimes I don't believe that you're working for my good. I'm I'm just afraid. I know that's true for those of us in this room too. If you can name something in your heart, an area where you're not yet trusting God, maybe it's of the categories that I listed, singleness or marriage, children, legacy, money, sin, 
Would you just in the quiet of your own heart name that to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I give you control of this part of my life. I surrender to you, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you are my Lord. Would you have your dominion in me? Forgive me for setting myself up as the Lord of my own life. Forgive me for trying to lord over others and and, and be your Lord. Help me to repent and help me to trust you. And I pray also that that you'd give us the confidence that your strong arms will catch us because you know what we're made of. We're a fearful people. You know what we're made of. We need your assurance. Send your spirit as we take steps of boldness to surrender to you and fill us with the confidence that you love us and you are working for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.